Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and kidnapping. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Adolf Kors I grew up in Western Germany in the late 1840s, and much of his early life was dedicated to the craft of brewing beer. He worked hard and apprenticed at a brewery, where he trained under the industry's finest craftsmen. By 1868, he took his expertise across the world and gained employment at a brewery in Chicago. But he never stopped aiming for more. Now that he was settled in the U.S., he formed a new dream to run his own brewery and craft the perfect beer. Adolf saved his money, and after a few years, he packed his bags and headed west for Golden, Colorado, roughly 15 miles outside of Denver. In 1873, Adolf and his business partner opened Golden Brewery in an old tannery building. They touted their beer's unmatched quality, and their customers agreed. By 1880, Golden Brewery saw great success. Adolf's dreams were within reach. He bought his partner out and renamed the business Coors Golden Brewery. The beer was perfect, and the brewery was his. Soon, he was one of the wealthiest businessmen of his time. Over the years, the brewery became a family business as Adolf and his wife reared their six children to join the company. When Adolf died in 1929, he left the Coors Brewing Company to his three sons. They carried on their father's legacy, and one of them, Adolf Jr., eventually passed the business on to his sons. From the outside, it looked like the idyllic American dream. An immigrant's small business turns his family into millionaires. But in 1960, tragedy visited the Coors family. They came face to face with a disturbing mystery. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm your host, Carter Roy. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free, exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the kidnapping of Adolf Kors III. This week, we'll cover the circumstances surrounding his abduction, the investigation into his disappearance, and the grim discovery of his murder. Next week, we'll cover the FBI manhunt that followed and the dark secrets they uncovered. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The morning of February 9th, 1960, was clear and cool in Morrison, Colorado. The neighborhood milkman thought he'd make his deliveries in no time. He made his way down a narrow road, which brought him to a bridge overlooking Turkey Creek. Strangely, he spotted a green station wagon parked in the middle of the bridge. He honked his horn, but got no response. The milkman stepped out of his truck and approached the station wagon. The engine was running and the radio was on, but no one was inside. 
He wondered if the driver had ventured down to the creek below, so he peered over the bridge. Still, he saw no one. He thought perhaps the driver had strolled out of sight, so he went back to his truck and honked again. He waited for a few minutes, and no one emerged. The milkman wanted to stay on time. Frustrated, he decided to push the station wagon across the bridge himself. He got back out of his truck and returned to the bridge. He rolled up his sleeves and then peered over the side of the bridge for one final check. That's when he dashed to the closest phone to report an alarming discovery. Please, please hurry! I spotted a reddish-brown stain on the bridge. It looked like fresh blood. I'll send men right away. Authorities arrived at the scene, led by Sheriff Arthur Wormuth. They ran the station wagon's plates, and their findings raised more concern. The car was registered to Adolf Coors III, also known as Ad, of the Coors Brewing Company. While we don't know a lot about Ad's life prior to his disappearance, we know that the family business was a big part of his life. Ad and his brothers Bill and Joe had inherited the company from their father, who'd inherited it from his father. According to the Denver Post, Ad, his brothers, and their sister May spent a lot of time playing at the main factory in Golden, Colorado when they were kids. They shot home movies there and made model airplanes in the shop. They even canoed through the creek outside. Ad loved living along the front range, so it was no surprise when, as an adult, Ad stepped into a higher role at Coors Brewing alongside his brothers. Under their leadership, the family became known for their ingenuity. Just one year prior to Ad's disappearance, they developed one of the first recyclable aluminum beer cans. This might seem standard nowadays, but at the time, beer cans were made of tin and steel. The Denver Post explains that aluminum doesn't alter the taste and is lighter and cheaper to transport. It's no wonder why Coors beer became famous across the nation. Likewise, the Coors family was known around Morrison, Colorado, not just for their beverages, but for their wealth. That's why authorities suspected someone targeted Adolf for his money. They just hoped that a potential robbery hadn't resulted in harm to Ad. There was no time to waste. By early afternoon, Turkey Creek swarmed with over 100 police officials and volunteers. As photographers captured the bloodstain and tire marks, volunteers canvassed the surrounding area, but none of them found any sign of Ad. So officers brought in two bloodhounds. The dogs picked up Ad's scent but lost it before going very far. Authorities quietly feared that Ad didn't make it out of the area. These fears were validated when search personnel found two items that sent shivers up their spines. Coming up, Ad Kaur's disappearance becomes part of a dangerous plot. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. 
Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. And now, back to our story. On the morning of February 9th, 1960, a station wagon belonging to Adolph Kors III was found abandoned on a creek bridge in Morrison, Colorado. Law enforcement descended upon the wooded area and quickly discovered two clues, a fedora and a baseball cap. Few men would leave such hats behind, and it led officers to believe that something bad truly had happened. But they didn't want to jump to conclusions just yet. Officers contacted Ad's wife, Mary, and his brother, Bill, so they could come speak with Sheriff Wormuth. Thank you both for getting here so quickly. We found these hats at the scene of Ad's disappearance. Do you recognize them? I'm certain my brother would never wear a fedora like that. But the baseball cap is his. He wears it all the time. I watched him put it on this morning. That's a great help. Thank you. Now, Bill, we haven't notified your father yet. We want to talk to you first, but I think it's time he hears the news. I'll let him know right away. Bill and Ad's father, Adolf Kors Jr., responded to the news with urgency. He didn't hesitate to use his prestige and influence to ensure his son's safe return. He reached out to an old acquaintance, the nation's FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. That's right, Hoover. My son went missing just this morning. Do you have any clue what happened? I fear, I fear he's been kidnapped. He wouldn't run off by choice, and he'd never abandon his family. Say no more. I'll make him the Bureau's top priority. I'll have agents there from Denver in no time. I owe you one. Agents from the Denver FBI office soon arrived at Turkey Creek. They were led by Special Agent Scott Werner. Officers briefed Werner and his team, who drew two conclusions. First, since the car was left with the motor running, they believed Ad left the area unexpectedly. Second, the dried blood pointed to a possible struggle between Ad and his assailant. Based on these ideas, the FBI believed the case had all the markings of a kidnapping. They likely believed there was still a good chance Ad was alive, but they needed more information. So agents went door to door to question those who lived nearby. Their suspicions darkened when two residents both claimed to have heard two gunshots that morning. Investigators had to consider the grim possibility that Ad Coors might already be dead. But they didn't let that thought stop them. They suspected the kidnapper's next move would likely be a demand for a payout. By this point, it was nightfall, so the next day they made their way to the Morrison Post Office. Once there, several agents sifted through incoming mail. It didn't take long for one letter to stand out. An agent paused and pulled out an envelope with the word PERSONAL typed in all caps in the lower corner. 
The words special delivery were smudged on the opposite corner. The envelope was addressed to Mrs. Adolph Coors III, Morrison, Colorado. Special Agent Scott Werner tore the envelope open and read the letter aloud. Mrs. Coors, your husband has been kidnapped. His car's by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI. He dies. Cooperate, he lives. Ransom, 200,000 and 300,000 and 20s. There will be no negotiating. Bills, used, non-consecutive, unrecorded, unmarked. Warning, we will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Understand this, Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that money. Deliver immediately after receiving call. The agents quickly questioned a postal employee who confirmed the letter had been postmarked in Denver the day before. This made them believe Ad was probably still alive. The ransom note also implied that more than one kidnapper had taken him. The FBI knew this might be a ruse a single kidnapper could use to throw them off the trail, but whatever the case, they knew what their next step would be. They would take a two-pronged approach to their investigation. First, pretend to cooperate. Second, search for the assailant's identity. In an effort to ID a suspect, investigators dusted the letter and envelope for fingerprints. But this turned up nothing. So they sent the materials off to a crime lab in Washington for further analysis. By now, multiple FBI agents were on the case. It's unclear whether Scott Werner continued heading things, but the investigation certainly didn't slow. An analyst soon called from Washington. Their findings weren't exactly what the agents had expected. We couldn't find prints, but we did learn that the perpetrator used either a Hermes or Royalite portable typewriter. How can you be sure? We looked at the typeface on the envelope and paper. We were surprised you all didn't do as much. <laughs> Anything else we should know? Yes, we examined the style of the paper and envelope, as well as the watermarks on them. Only two stores in Denver sell those products, Denver Dry Goods Company and May DNF. And it just so happens those are also the only two stores that sell both brands of typewriters. Last but not least, we noticed that the letter S strikes lower than the other keys. Which means the machine had a defect. Agents visited the May DNF store and spoke with the sales clerk. The clerk verified that she'd recently sold a Royalite typewriter to a man, but she was unable to provide his name. Agents continued digging and analyzed the ransom note to figure out how to lure the kidnapper. Which they knew they couldn't do on their own. It was time to show the note to Mary Coors. Afternoon, gentlemen. Uh Come on in. <clears throat> Mrs. Coors, I want to provide fair warning that what we've come here to show you might be hard to see. But we believe it's a good sign in your husband's case. Whatever it is, I can handle it. Our men retrieved this note at the post office earlier this week. Dear Mrs. Coors, your husband Adolf has been kidnapped. Please ransom $200,000, $300,000. FBI, he dies, cooperate, he lives, ransom, deliver immediately after receiving call. 
We know this must be difficult to understand. No, it, it isn't. What do you need me to do? Your part is simple. When the kidnapper calls, pretend to go along with their orders, then notify us as soon as possible. What are you going to do? Your father-in-law is working to secure the money now. We're going to enlist a couple of agents who look like Ad's brothers. Our primary goal is to get Ad back safely. But if we can catch this dirtbag in the process, even better. All I want is my husband back. Safe and sound. As the family awaited the phone call, FBI agents and Morrison officers collected tips. One day, someone gave them information that blew the case wide open. Coming up, detectives make two gruesome discoveries. And now, back to our story. Within a few days of Ad Kaur's disappearance, several witnesses, including Ad's daughter, provided authorities with the same piece of information. They claimed to have seen a yellow car parked near Turkey Creek prior to the kidnapping. There wasn't much agents could do with this information until a man named James Cable came to speak with them. I'm here about the Ad Kaur's kidnapping. I saw something you should know about. Go on. Well, every morning, I take Turkey Creek on my way to work. I'm pretty familiar with the area. For a few days before Mr. Coors went missing, there was this yellow mercury parked near the bridge on the side of the road. Did you see the driver? No, I always assumed they'd park there to go for a hike or hunt, so I didn't think much of it. But since I saw the car so many times, I remember some of the license plate. Colorado plate. Red 8062... Could have been 6205, but I know I'm close. A. A on a plate marks Denver County. This is a big help. Thank you. This was the break law enforcement had been waiting for. Agents were able to trace the plates to a dealership in Denver. In the days following Ad's disappearance, the FBI arrived at the dealership looking for answers. How can I help you fine gentlemen today? Would you like to test drive one of our vehicles? FBI, we're here to ask questions about a kidnapping. We need sales information. Can you help? Absolutely. What do you need? Do you have record of a yellow Mercury Colorado plates AT62 or AT6205? Let me see what I can find. Here we go. A 1951 sedan registered to a gentleman by the name of Walter Osborne. Authorities ran Walter Osborne's driving record. A fingerprint hit came back, and it added a new layer of terror to the case. The name Walter Osborne was an alias. The print belonged to a California fugitive named Joseph Corbett, who was wanted for murder. They now had a suspect, but he was capable of far more evil than they'd realized. Agents rushed to determine Corbett's whereabouts. In doing so, they learned that on February 17th, a yellow mercury had been discovered, almost completely incinerated in Atlantic City, New Jersey, over 1,800 miles away. Local authorities had been able to salvage the vehicle identification number, 
which confirmed it was Corbett's car. The VIN also helped them find the address the vehicle was registered under. The FBI's next stop was an apartment complex right there in Denver. Sometime around February 20th, authorities descended upon the Pearl Moore Apartments. They were met by the landlady, Viola Maris. What's going on? Are you the owner of this property? I'm the landlady. We're looking for Walter Osborne, apartment 305. (sighs) He moved out on the 10th. (sighs) Did he leave a forwarding address? Uh, No, he paid what he owed and left. Does the name Joseph Corbett mean anything to you? I don't know who that is. We're going to need to take a look around. The agents turned Corbett's apartment upside down. They knew this was a man wanted on murder charges, and what they found painted an even darker picture than the one they'd already formed. They discovered handcuffs, leg irons, and tent poles. The items not only spelled kidnapping, but a premeditated, cold-blooded plot. The agents canvassed the apartment complex and surrounding neighborhood to see what else they could find. They needed to know everything they could about their suspect. One gas station attendant helped them to understand the fugitive's plan a little more. So you'd seen him here a few times. What do you remember about him? Every time he came in, he spent the same amount, three dollars. And he always paid with singles, never a check or a card. Did he have someone with him last time he came by? Anything suspicious you might remember? No, there was nobody with him. But most recently, while I was putting gas in his car, I noticed a sleeping bag and tent in the back seat, like he was going camping. That was the first time I'd seen him with that kind of stuff. Authorities likely assumed that Corbett had planned to camp out with Ad until he was ready to phone Mary for the money. They questioned his father, ex-co-workers, and neighbors but no one had a clue where to find him. By now, Corbett was one of the Bureau's most hunted fugitives. On March 30th, 50 days since Ad's kidnapping, the FBI placed Corbett on the top 10 most wanted list. This meant Corbett probably knew the FBI was on his tail. And since Mary didn't follow his orders not to involve law enforcement, agents told her she should no longer expect his call. They hoped the widespread urgency would lead them to him, but the trail went cold for months. That also meant that there were no leads on Ad's whereabouts. The impact of the Ad Corps' disappearance continued to take its toll on his family. His brothers, Bill and Joe, developed a public aloofness. Adolph Jr. refused to even acknowledge the situation with employees. Mary Coors seemed to be taking things the hardest. In an attempt to mask her pain, she started drinking heavily. Even though she wanted to put on a brave face for her kids, she also hired armed guards to accompany them at school. Deep down, Mary likely thought that nothing was okay. Then, when an update in the case finally came in September, it was the last thing anyone wanted to hear. 
A man named Edward Lee Green Jr. went for a hike about 12 miles south of Denver. Blazing a new hiking path, Green stumbled upon a pair of trousers buried under a loose pile of dirt. He picked up the trousers, shook off the dirt, and felt something slightly heavy inside one of the pockets. Curious, he pulled out a key ring engraved with the initials A.C. III. Green knew something was amiss. He notified authorities who rushed to the scene. Likely through speaking with the family, they were able to confirm that the pants belonged to Ad. Detectives searched the nearby area, but nothing else was found for days until September 15th. FBI agents and police scoured that same area Green had days prior. They seemed to notice something resembling a dump site. When they looked closer, they spotted something horrifying. It was a human skull. The search of the area also turned up other skeletal remains, as well as a shirt and jacket pierced with bullet holes. The skull was sent off for analysis, and soon dental records verified everyone's fears. The remains belonged to Adolf Kors III. After seven agonizing months, Ad's family was now certain that the father of four and heir to the Kors brewing empire was never coming home. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of the murder of Adolf Kors III. We'll watch as an everyday person gives the FBI exactly what they need to catch their suspect and explore the killer's mysterious final days. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacy Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Luther M. Mace. Edited by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checked by Mary Mathis. Researched by Mickey Taylor. Produced by Joshua Kern and sound designed by Michael Langsner. It stars Kai Jordan, Cameron Nicod, Charlie West, Zelda Diana Black, and Dinesh Alvis. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.